Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I read a book in 1988 called The Power Game, How Washington Works. It's by Hedrick Smith, and it really helped shape my understanding of how to make political and social change. And there's a story in there I've never forgotten about how the chairman of CBS went to the White House in 1983, Reagan was president, to meet with one of the senior advisors to Reagan. And so an aide to that senior advisor offered to meet with the chairman while he was waiting, but he wanted to meet with the top guy. And when the top guy got there, he says he didn't have much time. He should have talked to my aide, the person who actually informs and shapes the information. And Smith tells that story to illuminate the importance and power of the staff and advisors to powerful people. And as we think about politics in this country and where we're going in the next few years, let me speak a hard truth about a major structural challenge we face. In progressive politics and social change work, the people who offer a window on the world to busy, powerful, and rich people are overwhelmingly white. I went to a donor conference several years ago with dozens of the country's largest Democratic donors. And this conference had assembled 15 experts to advise the donors during this multi-day conference. These 15 experts had 13 white men, one black man, and one black woman, the twofer. And so we still have a situation in this country where completely under the radar and out of the view of any accountability measures, the vast, vast majority of people who advise America's liberal and progressive major donors are white. And the consequence of that is that who gets on the radar of major donors, who is invested in, what strategies are pursued, tend to overlook and ignore those who come from and understand the communities that comprise the engine of progressive social change, people of color working to eradicate inequality and injustice. We only know what we know. And so if our advisors and our guiding staff are limited by those life experiences, then the people they're advising are going to be similarly limited. So I am always happy to find what uh, our friend Ludovic Blaine of the uh, California Donor Table calls the chocolate chips, the people of color in a largely white field working to make a major difference. And I'm delighted that on today's podcast, we have just such a guest, someone I've known for many years, I'm delighted to watch her career path and increasing influence and impact in the world of philanthropy. She's become a soulmate in the struggle, a confidant who listens to me bitch and moan and offers a shoulder to lean on and moral support. And I can't wait for our listeners to meet her. And so for this conversation, I'm joined as always by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. Are you over your jet lag from your Portugal trip? And do you want to induce our guest? Hey, Steve. I am really, really close to getting over my jet lag. The good thing about the jet lag is that it's one of the only things that makes me kind of like a natural morning person because I'm usually a natural night person. So I passed out shortly after dinner and woke up uh, pre-dawn and I'm I'm feeling rested. So I am actually kind of enjoying it. I'm really excited about our guest today. Our guest today is Crystal Haling. Crystal is the executive director of the Libra Foundation, which is based in San Francisco. The Libra Foundation funds social and economic justice organizations that integrate human rights into their work. Crystal has been on the front lines of philanthropy for years. In her role, she's brought a fresh vision of philanthropy that rejects business as usual and is responsive to the needs of frontline communities. Under her leadership, 
The Libra Foundation has deepened its priorities around specific areas, including women's rights, with an emphasis on reproductive rights, environmental justice, with a focus on promoting social justice and mitigating the impacts of climate change. In September 2020, she founded the Democracy Frontlines Fund. This was a new aligned giving strategy that raised $36 million in unrestricted multi-year support for an exemplary state of Black-led organizations. She's served on multiple boards, and in 2021, last year, Crystal was named to Inside Philanthropy's Power List 100. She's a graduate of Yale University and Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Welcome, Crystal. So excited to have you here today. Oh, it's wonderful to be here with both of you. Thank you so much. I didn't know you went to Stanford Business. All these years I've known you, I didn't know yeah, until, until just like, now. Hey, Red. <laughs> I sure did. <laughs> Way That's to go. Awesome. Exactly. Yeah, extra points. Extra points. <laughs> oh, you know, a little known story, I don't think you probably don't know, Charlene, is that when I was a senior in high school, I trying to decide where to go to college. And, this, and I lived in Cleveland, right? And the same weekend, I visited Yale and then Stanford. And I, and, and the joke, which is not really a joke, is that I came out to Stanford. Both of you had the weather and the sun and all of that. And I was driving in El Camino Real in Palo Alto and saw that they had <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken and Arby's. And all that Yale uh, had were like pizza joints in New Haven. I was like, I think I could go to Stanford. You're the only one that be sold on Arby's and KFC as yeah, a deciding well, factor, but that, that's why we are. you're lucky. And I have to tell you, Steve, you missed out on some really good pizzas in New Haven. Uh, totally. <laughs> so, so just to get us going, right? I mean, you have been in, you, uh, looking at your like LinkedIn and a longer thing on your bio. So you've been in philanthropy most of your professional life. And so my, my first joke question was, why didn't you get out when you had a chance? But <laughs> really, but more, can you share what drew you to the field? And, and, and seriously, why have you stuck with it so long? Well, you know, it's so funny because it, certainly philanthropy is not a field that, uh, you know, a little black girl from Florida is naturally expected to move into. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it, I, it was a complete accident, actually, how I ended up in the field. Um, I moved to California um, after college and after having done a couple stints abroad, uh, lived in China, lived in Mexico, and then decided it was time to actually get a real job. And uh, I took a Greyhound bus from uh, Fort Lauderdale to LA, slept on the couch with some friends, wow. oh. <laughs> and had two suitcases and maybe $500. And, uh, but I answered an ad in the newspaper, uh, in the LA times. And, uh, the ad was for someone who, uh, wanted to work with women's rights organizations and, uh, wanted to help to decide where resources went, uh, in communities, particularly focusing on, uh, violence against women, rape crisis centers, uh, and economic development for women. And I had done quite a bit of that kind of work throughout my, you know, just sort of as a volunteer, um, in college and, and, and in years after, and I just applied and that ended up being, 
a job as the first program officer of the newly formed Los Angeles Women's Foundation. And that's how I got into philanthropy. And to be honest, it was really, I'm a little bit of a perfect case study of why women's funds were created. First, they were, you know, that was a movement of women's foundations at that time. This is in the 80s, uh, starting out to create a multiracial, multi-class a vehicle for moving women's rights, and also as a place where we could train new staff that looked a little bit different than the staff of most foundations at the time. And uh, that has certainly proven to be, uh, you know, what I was able to do and what the foundation was able to accomplish. And it then merged late years later, and it's now still the uh, Women's Foundation of California, but mm-hmm. and it's still a fantastic training ground and redistribution place for lots of donors to come in and find out what it means to actually give in a progressive way on women's issues. And I kind of got caught. I I met the then head of the California Wellness Foundation. He'd been in the role maybe for a couple of months. And, uh, you know, he said, well, why don't you come over? I'm looking to hire. So I ended up being, I think, the eighth staff person hired at the California Wellness Foundation, which you guys know, you know, were sort of the new up and coming foundations. And a few months after I was there, their endowment tripled. Um, And it just ended up that positions kept opening up and I kept finding ways to kind of begin to move more progressive larger dollars to issues that began to reflect the community that I knew and the communities I experienced in a way that most of philanthropy really was not working. Can you, well, you mentioned coming up in Greyhound made me think about political, black political scientist Manning Marable had this mm-hmm. comment when he brought him up to speak once he wrote, was it how capitalism undeveloped black America? He says that the uh, Greyhound is a, a Negro national institution, right? So. <laughs> it's absolutely true. And I'll tell you something, when you get a real sense of uh, the the nation uh, when you travel in a Greyhound mm-hmm. bus, and you also get a really important sense of how big Texas is, because it's like a day and a half, yes. you know? <laughs> yes, very yeah. much so. <laughs> um, I, I think it's important because I was you know, opening up talking about how white philanthropy is and how much of the world about who advises wealthy and powerful white people is, you know, other white people. And so I do think it's really important to salute those, you know, major donors who actually do turn to people of color. And so, you know, you have the, you know, good fortune to work with um, Nick and Susan Prisco who created Libra. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to give a shout out to them for hiring you. And I actually didn't realize you had that Women's Foundation of Southern uh, of LA connection because I actually got involved. Susan, my wife and I got involved with the Women's Foundation of California when Patty Chang was there trying to move it in our racial mm-hmm. justice direction. And that's where I met Susan Pritzker was in that context. They had this whole race, justice, and human rights donor circle. But can you talk a little bit about coming to Libra and kind of how uh, um, that came about in terms of helping to spearhead their philanthropy. Absolutely. You know, you're so right to give that shout out to Nick and Susan, because uh, even though there are more, um, there still are not that many folks who run family foundations that kind of look like me. And that's changing, but it's Mm. still part of it. Because generally speaking, lots of uh, wealthy folks hire somebody they know and trust, which is often their 
uh, estate or trust attorney or um, somebody they went to college with, uh, their best oh, yeah, friends. No, there, there's a there's a billionaire foundation in this country where her board member or her most important people is in is either her accountant or right. her like actual her like legal lawyer around very exactly. stuff, and they're advising exactly. around philanthropy. That's right, very very common. Um, and so, or you know, back in the day, it was often the president of the university that the person was an alum of, and they'd gotten to know the president of the university because they gave you know wrote big checks to the university. And then when the president was ready to retire, they said, why don't you come run my foundation? That used to be one of the most important career paths for people was wow. former university college presidents were who came in to run foundations. Um, and, and I had worked in lots of uh, what we refer to as kind of public foundations that had boards that are self-perpetuating, that are full of people who, you know, might be experts in public health or healthcare systems or, uh, you know, kind of any of the issue areas. But I'd not really worked as a, in a leadership position for a family foundation. So when the headhunter called me about this job, I was like, oh, let me give you lots of names. I can think of really wonderful names for you. And he was like, well, what about you? And I just, I said to him, you know, I don't think that's my strength. And he said, uh, you know, I don't think being an advisor is the thing that I'm really good at. And he said, well, maybe you should come meet this family. And I did. And we really hit it off. And, um, you know, and I, I was very open and honest with them in the interview that if they were not looking for someone who would bring a racial justice lens, I'm not the person for that job. And they said, no, that's that's really what we're looking for. And we'd like to be on this journey together. And so uh, here we are five years later. That is uh, just incredible. I, I wanted to follow up with that in 2020, when you, as ED of Libra Foundation, you were able to get the foundation to double its giving, you know, to these grassroots organizations led by and for low-income communities of color. That amount went from 25 million in 2019 to 50 million in 2020. Again, just absolutely incredible. Can you just give us some insight into how you were able to accomplish that, why the foundation decided to do that, you know, just to give us a little insight into how that all went down? Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, this role has really offered me the opportunity to bring um, my 30 years of experience in philanthropy um, right up front and to put it to the test. And uh, one of the things that we had really been working on is the idea that our philanthropy at Libra would be focusing on communities of color, would be focusing on organizations led by and for the people most impacted by the issues that we're addressing. And that it was incredibly important for us because we listen very closely to the nonprofits that uh, that Libra funds, and they really are kind of keeping our ear to the ground on what they're saying. And in 2019, the nonprofits that Libra was working with that are community focusing on community organizing, that are focusing on what's happening in low-income communities, were saying to us, next year is going to be an incredibly important year. Um, we're suffering from so much neglect and um, and really, frankly, you know, abuse uh, at the hands of the powerful that it's going to be important for us to show up, to organize our communities, to amplify the voices of people who have been uh, powerless for a very long time. And they said it would be really wonderful if a foundation would demonstrate that they're listening to what we're saying. And so mm -hmm. our board actually 
decided to increase to double the grant making for 2020 in 2019. And um, and then everything hit. <laughs> um, I was so, going to say, timing you know, wise, right? Then, you know, then and, the thing you didn't expect was called that's right. the pandemic. And but we were ready with the resources and that's we had been right. listening to the community and they were ready to pivot um, and to really reorganize and restructure themselves to respond to the pandemic, to respond to George Floyd's murder and really organize communities to try to survive and also form a vision for where we want to be headed in the future. Crystal, I'm really intrigued by uh, Democracy Frontlines Fund. So I want to talk about it and um, you know find out more. Throughout your career, you've been focused on building strong relationships of trust with people of color-led organizations that we've, as we've been talking about, as you've been sharing with us. And this has been across the spectrum of racial and social justice issues. In 2020, again, pivotal year, you started the Democracy Frontline Fund in response to the police murder of George Floyd. Within eight weeks, the Democracy Frontlines Fund raised $36 million to fund Black-led organizations on the front lines of fighting for democracy. Can you share with us, why did you start the Democracy Frontlines Fund? You know, I would say that the that founding the Democracy Frontlines Fund was both um, a gesture of hopefulness and also of despair. Um, you know, during the course of my career, I have unfortunately been working in philanthropy at times of tremendous racial uprisings and um, and you know huge conflict in this country. So I was you know working in philanthropy when Rodney King was um, beaten by the police. You know, so all of these things, and I had seen what philanthropy does. And I wanted to make sure that we didn't make the same mistake over and over again. And typically what philanthropy does is it would form a commission, you know, sort of get a bunch of professors together, go to a university, give them a big fat check and say, let's study this problem. Mm -hmm. And then the report comes out two, three years later and nothing happens. Oh my gosh. Right. (laughs) So I thought, you know, what, what if we actually move money quickly? Um, and part of what I wanted to do was to address this problem that philanthropy has a strong bias to study and um, I wanted to move us to have a bias to action. And so um, I, call, I started calling people I knew in philanthropy, other foundation heads, and I said, I have an idea that we could pool our resources and we could give to Black-led organizations and we're going to put together a brain trust of women who are, uh, of, and it ends up being a, a group of BIPOC women who are, who have like a hundred years of experience collectively in funding grassroots movement work and let them select the grantees. So we put together a brain trust of incredible women who help to curate the list of the 10 organizations that are the slate of grantees, that are these amazing organizations like the Movement for Black Lives, like BYP, Black Youth um, 100, like Black Voters Matter, um, like like the Black Food Justice Alliance. And we, we said those are the kinds of organizations that need foundational, ongoing, long-term general operating support. Um, and they're the ones who are helping to define what it means for Black people to participate in this democracy. 
And we all know when Black people participate in this democracy, then our democracy is working. And when we don't, mm-hmm. then it's not. Um, and I was shocked because as I called these other foundation CEOs, they said, we're in. This is unheard of for foundations to say, we're going to join, put money in. The ante for each foundation was $3 million a piece over three years. Um, They don't get to select the organizations that get the funding. But the real, I think, attractive part of this was that we would, as funders, go on a learning journey together. So we've been meeting on a quarterly basis, um, first only through Zoom, but uh, most recently through a trip to Montgomery, Alabama, to the Equal Justice Initiative. And um, we have been learning about the issues of what it means for Black people in this country to participate in democracy. And we've been listening to our grantee partners. We've been in conversation on tough topics, uh, you know, like what the heck does defund mean? Um, And that has been where we have really seen growth and change with many of these foundations launching much larger initiatives around their giving to Black and BIPOC organizations. And um, that's, I think, one of the pieces that really unlocked this for us was to say, if you were surprised by what happened to George Floyd, Um, then the aperture for how you see America needs to be widened. And why not focus on and rely upon the expertise of people whose eyes are already wide open and they can help us to get better and to become more knowledgeable. And so that's really what the... um, Democracy Frontlines Fund is. It has been. We are, we've actually now added three additional funding partners. So it's now a $45 million initiative. And we have a couple of other foundations Woo-hoo. that have been, have said they want to join. And we're probably going to be opening ourselves up to um, a renewal round as well. So, you know, we don't think of this as being forever funding, but we do think of it as being an important political intervention where many foundations are, we're fearful of funding Black organizations, let's be honest. And when Mm -hmm. we do it together, when we do it with a curiosity and an open learning mind, um, we have found it to be incredibly powerful. So my, my, uh, my, my joke is so you you've had a hard time finding any uh, talented white men to hire. But the the actual question though is you know because you it, it, you know as I opened up talking about how much of the infrastructure is not reflective of the mm-hmm. you know spectrum the diversity of the particularly the populations that need help and you've got this you know brain trust and you know, all women of color right and mm-hmm. then your team is amazing all people of color mm-hmm. so and you say you have fifteen you know founded but you don't have fifty or hundred so I'm curious. Has there been either pushback or lack of properly getting it as you've tried to attract people, um, people not necessarily seeing the traditional picture of what philanthropy looks like as you've tried to put this together? Yeah, I think it is very hard because philanthropy is um, largely populated by folks from um, a very similar background. Right. So we talk about diversity and I really mean that the diversity is important in all its forms. Um, and, you know, but but you, you do have a problem here where we have not 
really created enough of diversity to reflect the community served. And, and I and I think it it is, um, I'll, I'll give you a quick story. Years ago, um, uh, when I was joining one of my first jobs, uh, actually when I moved up to the Bay Area, and um, I was working in a foundation in which um, a number of, I was it was my first time working in the Bay Area and a number of grantees, uh, former grantees kind of held a little um, welcoming party for me so that I could meet other people in the community. Um, so, you know, down in Los Angeles, which is where I had been living, I, you know, only I'd been in relationship with lots of nonprofit leaders there. And they said, well, it'd be great for you to meet other nonprofit leaders up here. So they had a little welcoming party for me. And um, unbeknownst to me after that party um, and word had sort of gotten around and it was a lovely little gathering. It was not a big deal, but um, a group of foundation CEOs in the Bay Area who had a regular dinner meeting and sort of brought an ethical question to each other to discuss um, the fact that this group of uh, nonprofit Profits had held a welcoming party for me was the topic of their ethics conversation. Hmm. Um, because they really were questioning whether it was going to be possible for me to bring the appropriate level of objectivity to my role, um, (laughs) given that I was being so friendly with the nonprofit organizations. Now, interestingly, you know, they were concerned about objectivity when it came to the opera or the museum or the organizations where they sit on the board and make grants. But it was rather than seeing those relationships as a strength, they saw them as a threat. And I think that is one of the challenges that we're up against when we look at hiring into philanthropy is the very things that can make uh, people of color really strong advocates and bring a whole new lifeblood and energy and awareness and knowledge into foundations is seen as something that isn't trustworthy. Um, And so that's part of the script that we're trying to flip here. So then oh, you're not the, seeing my facial expressions. <laughs> <you're saying> <laughs> <about that. laughs> Man, uh, that well, is I, so I, I want to follow up on that in terms of the, the flip side of that to a certain extent. Right. So then it's I, I, I remember when, um, you know, the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court hearings were going on and, then, you know, Nita Hill and all of Nita Hill's um, uh, classmates were testifying before Congress. And it's like all these different black people. And I remember somebody saying the country had never seen that many talented, articulate black people at one time before, <laughs> right? Usually it falls out one at a time. And, you know, I think particularly, you know, for those of us who went to these different institutions, right, where we've seen the people who ascend to these levels of prominence, like through Yale and Stanford, et cetera. And then the, you know, frankly, the, 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 the lie of the meritocracy, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious as somebody who has responsibility for, you know, overseeing and allocating millions and millions of dollars, where did you find the people, which is the, the question you always get, I got one, one very high level of official once said to me, we can't find people, right? <laughs> so where did you find these people of color to be your brain trust and on your team? And, and how, what reflections do you have from that? Well, I think that 
uh, these folks are here. So that's, you know, we can put that to rest. Uh, you know, there's just extraordinarily brilliant uh, people of color in every field, in every walk of life. I mean, it's just, you know, that 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 they exist. Um, it, the question is whether or not people are uh, going to open themselves up, uh, you know, so it really matters. Um, you know, the the person who did the search for me, um, uh, Vincent Robinson at the 360 Group is an African-American man, and he has done a tremendous um, service to this field by bringing more people in. Um, and, uh, you know, as have many other now, you know, um, Walker and Associates and others that are um, doing search in this uh, world, they are able to really show um, slates of candidates um, that are much more diverse and 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 who you select as your search firm really matters. Um, you know, but for me, I think when you're doing this work, um, I love to try to bring people in who've actually been working in the nonprofits in the movement groups that we're funding. Um, you know, and it, it can be a challenging um, transition for folks to come from nonprofits into philanthropy, but it's an important uh, role for folks to move into to be able to open up these resources and share a different perspective. And I'll just give an example. Um, you know, the field of criminal justice reform, as it's currently most often referred to, um, has been completely transformed by the formation of organizations of people who've been formerly incarcerated, um, by people who have family members who are incarcerated, um, because those folks have brought a different different kind of conversation to the work. They've been saying things like, it's not just, you know, the jail system in this country is um, really <clears throat> a poverty tax on people. If you have the money, you can get out of jail. If you don't have the mm. money, you can't get out of jail. Mm -hmm. Well, that isn't really um, an issue that a lot of the think tanks that were working on sentencing reform were really thinking about really tackling the gross inequity based on income, the conditions of what people are experiencing in jails, their access to health care, the access to expensive um, for-profit phone calls. Um, these are all mm -hmm. things that are really, uh, that have created a granular understanding of the gross injustice that this criminal justice system currently imposes on people of all races and genders. And that has shifted the urgency of the conversations about criminal justice reform in a way that a lot of the blue-blooded think tank research reports had not done in this country. And so I think we can see that that's a really powerful force. We've seen that in areas like gun control, where the family members of people who've been executed in mass shootings in this country have banded together to create a different voice. So I think we are seeing that in philanthropy, pulling people from the lived experience of the issues we care about can change the conversation. They can come into organizations with a different perspective. And that's a really different way of moving public policy with a lot more power. And I think that's where, where we're seeing where philanthropy is beginning to get the point. So Proxy Frontlines Fund is, you know, it's approaching its two-year anniversary. And so as you reflect on that and look ahead, what are your primary goals and what do you hope to see accomplished in the next two years? Well, I think one of the main things that we have been really excited about is 
to demonstrate and create greater ties between Black-led organizations and philanthropy. Um, there are ongoing conversations. One of the things we, we have to pay attention to is the fact that the far right is always talking about race. Um, they're right. always using right. fear. <laughs> they're always telling people, you know, who to hate, who to be afraid of, hmm. uh, who doesn't belong. They're always talking about race with dog whistles and now overtly racist comments. And the left and progressives are always trying really hard not to talk about race. It's like we're afraid of it, right? Like we like we're afraid that somehow or another, you know, it's the thing, it's the third rail that's going to turn off all of our voters and it's going to make people afraid to uh, join organizations. And I think what we found is it's really important to hold on tight to the lesson we learned after George Floyd and after Black Lives Matter movement. That was the single largest civil rights revolt in this country that we've ever seen, where we had people from uh, rural areas, from suburban areas, from urban areas, marching out on the streets, posting signs on their you know front lawns and in their apartment windows, saying the simple phrase that Black Lives Matter. Um, that is a powerful moment that I think if we continue to hold on to that as we all saw our, our best selves come out during yeah. that time. And we can continue right. to see that best self come out. And so I think what I hope for with the Democracy Frontlines Fund is that foundations don't allow themselves to become part of the backlash mm -hmm. that moves back into not saying that they want to talk about race, not acknowledging and being forthright. We, we need to be forthright and saying that our goal is to achieve a strong, multiracial democracy where we can all thrive and to not back down from that. And, and that's what I hope that we can continue to achieve. And when what we have seen is that by being in relationship with these leaders of the Democracy Frontlines Fund, Black-led organizations, our grantees, it really creates a powerful relationship, shoulder to shoulder, not sort of sitting across the table from each other, but actually flanking and being allied with one another. That's what gives us real power. Uh, I got to say, Crystal, when we were starting to talk about the topic, you know, planning for today's episode, oh, the topic's going to be philanthropy. It's not, I got to be honest, the word philanthropy doesn't like make one go like, yeah, you know, <laughs> but right. <laughs> I was like, okay, philanthropy, it's important. But I'm like, my heart is racing. I, I'm excited. I'm like so pumped. And you are just so uh, incredible at articulating the excitement and hopefulness around it, but especially shedding light on how a change is happening and how it isn't night at the opera. It is hip hop. This is what's mm -hmm. coming up for me. You're like <laughs> I love talking it. about philanthropy and you were saying earlier, well, you know, they feel fine about advocating for their, you know, the arts and their version of the arts and, and opera and whatnot. I think that the old school and sort of the perception um, of a branding, you know, I, I, I work in branding, so I picture, I think a lot of people associate philanthropy with this sort of old school way. It's like night at the opera, but I am loving this hip hop brand and movement 
fusion with philanthropy. And uh, I'm really excited. And you just made it so clear in the case for the revolutionizing the field and that, and to know that it is happening and there are people like you at the forefront and all the years that you've dedicated to it. Just really, really grateful to have had you, you know, in this conversation and sharing with our listeners, um, giving an inside, like behind the curtain look at what is happening. Uh, and I just hope people check it out, check out um, uh, DFF and and all the work that you're doing. A uh, quick question. If there's one thing that you want to put a spotlight on, is there any one thing that you're proudest of? I would have to say the thing I'm proudest of is the folks that I've had the opportunity to work with um, doing this work over the years. Um, you know, I have uh, been lucky to have managed and been able to hire lots of incredible folks, some of whom are now running foundations themselves. Yes, I am that old. Um, <laughs> and um, and I, I just, you know, I think there are so many incredible young people coming up in this field who are are just breaking the mold even more. And I'm, I'm incredibly excited about that. I also think funding and working with lots of folks who are working with really progressive philanthropy through intermediaries like the Solidaire Network, like Resource Generation, like Borealis Philanthropy, like all of these amazing people of color who are coming up in this field and saying, we're, we're, we're doing philanthropy differently, but we're opening the table to other people to join us. And I think that there's a spiritual change happening as well. And, and I think people are recognizing that you can um, use money to create a kind of systemic change when we really think about knowing and doing this work differently. And that's what's really exciting to me. And there's more and more young people coming up who are doing it. And I've had the pleasure and privilege of getting to work with a lot of them. So that's what I think I would say I'm most proud about. Well, I just want to say that we're proud of you and the work that you're doing and not even just in terms of the you know the actual work and the hiring and moving the money but it was, you were talking about the you know the the fund i was like yes i mean it's so funny because there's no reason for philanthropy to be timid most people are timid because they're trying to get money from somebody right and so <laughs> philanthropy already has the money and so there is no reason to not and to, to model for people that you can be explicit you can tackle these things directly is super important and actually probably even more important beyond even the direct work that you're doing. So your whole example is a real inspiration. I just want to thank you for that work and then also for joining us on, on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. This has just been a thrill and a delight. And Steve, you know, I'm a huge fan and um, am halfway through your new book and it's fantastic and brilliant. And um I just, and Charlene, thank you for uh, your great questions. I, I'm a big fan of the podcast as well. And so it's a real honor to be on. Thank you. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow Crystal on Twitter at at C Hailing, assuming Twitter's still going to exist. Um, please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. 
Until next time, keep the faith.